morning, everybody. It's Michelle from Studio City Now. And today my guest is musician, singer, songwriter, and all-around nice guy, um, Kenny Metcalf. Hi, Kenny. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing fine, Michelle. Nice to hear your voice again. Oh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to Nam every year because that's when I see you. Oh, yeah. That's that. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's few and far between. But boy, it sure is nice to see you every year at NAM. Yeah, I remember my first NAM. You were the first person I met. And you sang to me. You were doing your Elton John tribute. Yeah, and I sang your song. You did. And you know, it's funny. I mean, as we got to talking later on, you knew my Uncle Pat. And, um, you know, because he was at MCA, he was the A&R guy. And he also uh, pretty much steered Elton's career. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and I saw Elton at the Troubadour. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I would have loved to have been there. Uh, oh, oh <laughs> my God. It was incredible. I bet. Well, you know, um, it, it inclu you know including your Uncle Pat Pipolo, uh, Rick uh, Frio. Right. Uh, was, was one of those that um, the other guy's name is escaped me right now, but... Um, I think Rick Taxi? Um, no, there was, because there were three of them. There was Pat and Rick and Russell or... Yes. Well, I can't, I'm not, uh, it's, it slipped my mind right now. But last summer I was playing in Hollywood at a park for a summer concert festival. And a uh, guy comes up to me after the show and he says, uh, you know, he says, I, I, um, I brought Elton John to America with Pat Pipolo and, uh, and Russ or what? <clears throat> yeah, whoever. <laughs> but he said, uh, he says, I saw Elton John 50 years ago for the very first time. And he goes, I saw him again tonight. And he says, I'm Rick Frio. And, uh, I was like, you know, completely blown away. That was a super nice compliment, but, uh, just to meet history, you know, the guy that brought Elton over with your uncle. Yeah. Amazing. Well, here's something kind of funny. I remember turning to my Uncle Pat, because I just loved my Uncle Pat. He was incredible. And I remember saying, gosh, I hope this guy isn't just a one-hit wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nah, he had one or two more. Uh, maybe three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I was reading a little bio on you. Even though I've known you all these years, there's so much I didn't know. Um, but you were the keyboardist for Striper, weren't you? Yeah, but, you know, there's something else before we get into that that you didn't know about me. Okay. See, um, I, and so just hold that little note there. But, I mean, it's like you in the world that when I shower, I shower fully clothed. Uh, and the reason is uh, I can wash my clothes at the same time. And then all I got to do is go outside and shake off a little bit and wait until I'm dry. And I've accomplished two things at the same time. And <laughs> I can <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I like to multitask too, however. <laughs> however, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, these things but, just come to me and they're kind of a curse at times. <laughs> you know, it's not always perfect humor. Well, that's why we love you. <laughs> but, um, so, Striper, back there. Uh, tell me a little about Striper. I think I told you um, my sister found a Striper Bible. And she said, tell your friend I have his Bible. <laughs> I'm like, okay. 
because you know we're Christian, but she is a really big practicing Christian. I just be nice to people. <laughs> and so, when did she find that? Um, she found it two days ago. She knew she had it. She's moved a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and they're still unpacking boxes. And you know, she's had some changes in her life. So as she's pulling the last box out, it's like, there's my Bible. Cool. <laughs> and now was it, was it one of the ones that Striper would throw out or was it uh, a full-size Bible? I didn't ask her. I'm okay. assuming, knowing her, it's probably one that Striper threw out. Okay. Yeah. The, they were the little New Testaments and stuff. Yeah. No, those were the days. <laughs> wow. So tell me a little about the Striper days. I kind of remember them but that was like the 80s or 90s 80s yeah and i thought it was the coolest thing ever well 80s for me uh 90s they kept going but um but yeah i um i was involved with them before they were striper they were rocks regime and um i um i lived up the hill from them but i originally met them in 1977 playing at the la mirada performing arts center when it first opened uh the very first show they ever had was a talent contest and I was 18, <coughs> excuse me, and um, uh, it, that place holds 1,200 people. And I just wanted to play this beautiful theater that it was in a town I grew up in. And uh, it used to be a little walk-in theater, and they turned it into a performing arts center. And uh, so they had a talent show, and he had to audition. And uh, so I wrote an original song. It was called We're On Our Way. We made it if our friends could see us now. And it was it was basically, uh, you know, telling the story that nobody showed us how to make it. And we pulled it off. And um, I guess the song title self-explanatory. But uh, it was based off of the fact that Boston did that. It's another band out of Boston. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, it wasn't their lyrics. It wasn't their melody. But it was the same idea, you know, to tell how we made it. And so to be on that stage is, is what it was like. Yeah, we made it. Look, we're on this stage. So uh, anyways, went and auditioned and uh, did that, uh, got into that talent show. But there was another band. And at the time, that band was called the Firestorm Band. And um, they had a young singer. He was 14 years old. But the drummer was the, was the lead of that, um, not as a singer, but he was the one that put the band together. Um, they had a guy in that band, uh, C.C. DeMille. Um, okay, that name is familiar. Yeah, and uh, but it was Robert Sweet and Michael Sweet. Michael Sweet was 14 years old. And so it was the Firestorm Band. They played Johnny B. Good. I still have the original recording of Michael singing Johnny B. Good that night because my mother had one of those long tape recorders that you would hold and they had the big seven or eight <laughs> buttons you push down. You know, like piano <laughs> keys. And she re- she held that thing up and recorded the show. Um, him singing and, uh, and us singing. And uh, uh, we ended up winning winning that talent show, took third place. But but uh, for the band, that was, uh, um, they didn't place. And it was two other people in front of us. So they gave us third place. But that's where we first met the Sweets. And then about two years later, uh, they moved in on my block where I lived. And uh, in La Mirada. And so mm-hmm. they, li- they lived down the hill from me. And so um, we were gigging. They were gigging all the time. They were playing Gazaris uh, and all kinds of different places. In 1980, I became a Christian. 
And so um, I started, uh, I'd, I'd be coming home and their mom, well, they all saw the change in me. You know, I went from a, being a pretty messed up uh, musician, drug addict to, uh, um, you know, I was just always on something. And uh, I was completely changed. And so, they, you know, they wanted to know what happened. And so um, I started coming in and just sharing who Christ was in my life with them. And I spent about a year, you know, hanging out with them at their house in their garage. You know, I just come in every once in a while and, uh, and I put something on my heart and I'd share it with them. And, uh, once I shared it with them, that burden, so to speak would leave. And so it was, it was kind of prophetic in its own way. But I remember, uh, the, the last time that I went in and, pr- and asked them to pray with me, which was the first time that I asked him to pray. Um, but uh, I went in and I said, you know, God put it on my heart that you guys are an amazing band and you're, you know, you're going to sell out whatever you do. And if you uh, give Christ your life, you know, he'll take you bigger than you would have gotten um, because you'll not only just go bigger, you'll change lives because the spirit of God will be behind what you do. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so I said, so basically, uh, he wants to know, are you for him or against him? Choose today who you're going to serve. And uh, it was Oz Fox, Michael Sweet, and Robert Sweet, the three of them. Tim Gaines was not in the band yet, but another guy was sharing Christ with him. And, and, and he, was, he left the band called Stormer because he became a Christian. And so uh, anyways, they knelt down. I, we prayed. And then uh, uh, a week later or something, Robert changed the name from Rock's Regime to striper uh, because it rhymed with hyper and then uh i ended up uh being there the day that he was looking at the spelling of the words and he came up with an acronym which was salvation through redemption yielding peace encouragement and righteousness and he wrote it all down and then um somewhere later they found a scripture where in isaiah 53 5 it says with by his stripes you are healed and so they adapted that to their uh their logo my dad ended up making all their signs for their show. They're big, giant, lit up signs. And, um, and then Robert was asking me to go on the road with him. But my dad had just put me in business as a neon sign bender. And uh, so I was making neon tubing and stuff. And uh, I just uh, I turned Robert down a bunch of times. He kept asking me. And my wife said, do it. So... <laughs> So I said, well, the biggest thing is, you know, my dad just put a lot of money in. My dad and mom put money in to put me in business for myself. And, uh, you know, that was their investment. So I went and I asked my dad. He says, you know what? He says, you go on the road. He goes, if something like this would have happened to me, my dad would have wanted me to experience it. So he says, you go and I'll keep the business running while you're gone. Well, the first tour was 10 weeks, which is, uh, uh, or yeah, 10 weeks, two and a half months. And, um, uh, so uh, I did that. I got back up the road. But the first show with them was Pacific Amphitheater with Great White opening up for us. And, uh, and I just went from obscurity to, to huge venues to where the first tour ended in December. And uh, it was a uh, uh, universal amphitheater when it was still around. And it was enclosed at the time. So, mm-hmm. uh, so we headlined that and a band called Leather Wolf opened up. Uh, but I, but the first show that I ever did with them before that, where I said I'd, I'd give them an answer was I played Six Flags Magic Mountain with them in uh, up there in uh, Sandy, or, uh, Santa Clarita. 
And it was it was an outdoor amphitheater. It hold about thirty seven people, thirty seven hundred, and they had two shows back to back that night. And as soon as I walked on stage and the curtain went up, I immediately felt at home and knew I could do it. So I told them yes after that. And then uh, I did that first tour a couple months later. It began or a month later, and then uh, so it was a lot of preparation with them. And uh, off we went. And then I got back off that tour in December, and we hit another tour i think we left in march april may uh, yeah roughly uh maybe mid-february or something and that was my second tour with them so the first one was uh yellow and black attack the second one was soldiers under command tour and during the soldiers under command tour they did an interview with them for people magazine and i'm in people magazine of april 1986 and uh, picture with them and it talks about me in there as being the guy that uh had witness to them uh, but after that tour, you know, it was, that was 10 weeks as well. And I missed being at home with my kids. Um, you know, I, I was 27 years old, 20, going on 28 at, back then. And I was married, didn't want to mess up my life. And uh, with, uh, you know, being on the road and hurt my marriage. So and, and my kids, I missed them all every day. So I left the band and uh, Brent Jeffers took my place and pretty much stayed with them till about 1993 or so. And he went on to work with all kinds of people from, God, just everybody from uh, Nat King Cole's daughter. Um, oh, Natalie, yeah. Nat Natalie, yeah. He introduced me to her at one point. And, uh, but he, he worked with all kinds of people. And uh, he stayed busy. I think he's still out on the road somewhere. <laughs> so, But anyway, so, you know, that was my uh, history with them. And times uh, to be with them. They were the legitimate thing. They weren't phony. Uh, you know, they're human. They were just like anybody else, but they weren't doing drugs. They weren't messing around. Not mm -hmm. that I know of, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading about that, and I was like, wow, a hard rock band that doesn't do drugs. How unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but nice. well, my, well, I mean, I got a rock and roll band now. We don't do drugs. Well, and now it's like 2020. Yeah, different times too. Different times. Um, now, what I you were telling me a little about, and I did a little research, the Kenny Metcalf miracle. Oh yeah. Because what do you want to know? <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to begin, except that you're one of the few survivors of this. Yeah. Well, um, so being a Christian in my life, um, I've had God speak to me since I was a kid. I mean. I've, I've felt God's presence so many times. I've had so many things happen where I should have died and I didn't. And I can look back and I can see the miracles that had happened. So um, all of a sudden I got sick when I turned 46. My autoimmune system crashed. And uh, it took them eight months to figure out what was wrong with me. But I started with little blisters in the back of my throat. And, um, and then the blisters spread uh, all over my gums and uh, uh, they got so bad. I couldn't, I couldn't eat food. And then it started spreading outside. So in my eyes and my nose, my ears, um, and then I'm on my head and then my chest and my arms and my whole body. And uh, so it was, they were, it was a blister, uh, but they wouldn't heal. And then they would spread. And so they were just became giant sores, open wound. 
um, and got to the point where it was so bad I couldn't wear clothes. But it took them eight months to figure out what it was that I had. It was called Pemphigus vulgaris. So at the time, when they finally diagnosed it, the doctor told me, he says, you're going to, he goes, I, I don't know how to tell you this other than uh, um, you have a, an autoimmune disease and we have no cure for it and you're going to die. And um, I, I, he says, if you're lucky, you're going to live five years, maybe six, but you'll die a painfully horrible death. And uh, yeah. so if, if you've ever had a blister on your hand or something and it popped, you know how painful that is? So imagine having yeah. that inside your mouth, um, all over your body, growths, all kinds of stuff. I got so bad I couldn't wear clothes because just any little movement, shrug your shoulders, and the clothing would tear the skin off my back. It would, my skin would detach. And uh, oh so to, uh, to drink water felt like I was uh, uh, drinking broken glass to swallow. Um, the, uh, the way... Uh, I lost my voice. I lost everything. Lost my home. Everything that I ever had um, was gone at that point. But when you're on the bathroom floor and you're bleeding to death and you're dying, you know, all you want to do is, you know, go be with God and blamed uh, him for anything. But but during those be, uh, ten years before, ten or eleven years before I got sick, somebody saw me at a church. And they came up and they said, I got a word from God for you. And, uh, and I said, okay, what is it? And they said, they started to kind of read my life about being involved with Striper and everything else. I'd never met these people before. But then they said, I see God, the Father, boasting to the angels in heaven about you. Well, when, he said, when, when they said that, the lady said it actually, um, my heart dropped because there's a scripture in the Bible where... Um, uh, it says that um, the God was boasting to the devil. Have you considered my servant Job? And so mm -hmm. I, I knew the scripture and what Job went through. Well, Job had blisters all over his body. He lost his business, his home. He lost uh, his children and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I, you know, so I knew there was going to be a test coming, but I isn't a real word from God. And uh, so I just kind of let it go because if it's going to happen, if it's God's word, it will happen. And sure mm -hmm. enough, 11, 11 years later, um, my, my 46 year, all of a sudden something just changed in my system. And all of a sudden my body started getting sick and I was uh, had sores all over my body. I couldn't move. I couldn't walk. Uh, they had no cure for it. I was in so much pain that uh, even when I went into the hospital, the last day of my life, uh, because I, I mean, I was down to 120 pounds and there was no will to live anymore. I was done with life because the pain was so bad. And I, uh, I, I anyways, I, my wife took me into the hospital and there was a lot more to the miracle than that. But when I walked in and the, um, they took me to UCI hospital in her uh, mm -hmm. in uh, orange county and, yeah. and the uh the doctors took me in and into the burn unit but as they were rolling me down the hallway i was fading out i was going i was done and my wife yelled to me and she goes you're not leaving me yet and the doctor saw when she said that that my spirit turned around and from that point on 
I, my body started to accept the medications that the doctors were giving me. Now, that was um, 16 years ago. <laughs> yeah, 16, almost 17, actually. But um, anyways, uh, so I spent six weeks in a burn unit, soaked my skin in hottest water I could handle, you know, for 30 minutes until you shrivelly, and then uh, they'd scrub my skin off. Oh, and that's how they treat burn victims. You know, they, ha they have to keep you yeah. from getting infected. And but I mean, you know, they're rubbing m my flesh off and it, it felt like steel wool pads being scratched all over me. So um, so but I started healing. And so they were really encouraged over that. They'd have a, other Pemphigus patients in the year before and four of them survived. One of them died. But the other ones, they lost body parts, all kinds of stuff you know, fingers and it's like, you know, horrible disease. So uh, in, in jo Job's story, God restores Job. Um, and Job even had his accusers saying, well, what did you do? Maybe you did this. That happened to me too. I had religious leaders that did that to me, you know? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they were thinking, well, you brought this on yourself then. But it wasn't. I had to go to them and... Uh, talked to them and they asked my forgiveness after I got out of the hospital. I lived through something I shouldn't have lived through. And then I was healing. But uh, in the story of Job, when you see that all of a sudden, you know, he had his accusers and God blesses him no matter what, you know, and he comes through it. And then he has greater than he ever had in finance. He, his children, uh, the loveliest and fairest in the land and, you know, stuff like that. Well, that didn't happen overnight. But when you read the Bible, happen because you just turn the page um, but for me this has been 17 years now in that 17 years 12 of that was on heavy medications and IV treatments every month and um, with uh, nurses and you know five days a week IV treatments I've been off of every medication for uh, five maybe maybe six years now actually um, mm, great so and they consider me cured and I'm mm -hmm. one of the only ones in the world but what used to happen, and I talked to my doctor about it, he says, well, you know, before all the, these, these breakthroughs that have been happening with medications, people died, and they would die in a bathtub, bleeding to death. And that's exactly where I was, on the bathroom floor, because I, I would ruin everything. I couldn't, I couldn't even, you know, cover up with a blanket. I had a sheet over me to try to keep me warm. So um, in the middle of winter, you know, <laughs> so it was February 6th. When I went into the hospital to die and I got out six weeks later and uh, then it was a long, long process. But in that process, the last three years, uh, well, not last three years, I guess, three years after being in the hospital, a friend of mine uh, approached me and he says, hey, he says, tribute bands are playing the same kind of venues you played when you toured with Striper. He says, I bet if you uh, if you tried, I said, I bet you could sound like Elton. You kind of sounded like him, you know. And uh, I bet if you studied his voice and his music, you could, you know, you could do this and get out, get out of bed again. And so uh, I said, well, let me give it a shot. And I recorded Goodbye Yellow Brick Road that night. I, I used my keyboards and drums and, and I just, you know, drum machine and, or played the drums actually on my keyboard, one note at a time kind of thing. And I, mm -hmm. I, I did it note for note and um, did all the vocals. I got my voice back, too. And uh, my voice was higher than it has ever been, uh, ever in my life. So I'd lost everything and I got it back. Well, my wife came home and she says, is that you or is that Elton? 
Oh, wow. And so, <laughs> so I called my friend and I said, well, let's give it a try. And so then I sat down at the keyboard and I said, okay, God, you've been a part of my life and everything that I've ever done. You brought me through death's door, given me uh, life again. And I've been out of the hospital for three years. I've got sores still on my body kind of stuff. But I said, let's give it a try. I'd, I'd like to do this, but I want you to be a part of my life in this as well, like anything else, you know. It wasn't a religious thing. It was just I'm inviting him to be a part of what I'm going to go after. But I did say this. I said, if I do this, I want to be the best at it in the world. I don't want to do it half-ass. My, my real words. And anybody um, who's ever seen my show, you see my costumes. You see the, the amount of detail that I go into, uh, not just trying to sound like Elton and play note for note, but my costumes, recreating his original costumes. Uh, the tedious amount of work, and I build them all. I have a seamstress, she'll sew them for me, but I find the materials, I'll do all the the rhinestoning and the blinging, and uh, I mean, I've, I built the elaborate uh, pinball wizard costume, the champ with the giant boots, and I, fabric I, saw I, that. Yes. I fabricated those in my front yard, I spent a month, eight hours a day, and uh, so other than Elton's, those are the other ones that I know of in the world, and I made the glasses that were from the movie, Tommy, that he wore and uh, mm -hmm. I, I cut them out of plexiglass, shaped them, uh, buffed them, polished them, cut the insides for lenses. And uh, I took them in and had my prescriptions put in them. They have hinges. I put hinges in professionally, did it myself. I just asked these guys how they would have done it. And uh, so I just went after doing everything meticulously. And, uh, mm -hmm. and for the last, uh, we started this show 11 years ago. It's been on the road now as of April. Uh, 2020 has been 10 years on the road and uh, as a, you know, long time running musical, because I call it musical theater because we're in costume, we're in character. We don't break character until the end of the show when I introduce everybody and we say mm -hmm. goodnight. So when I walk on stage, I'm Elton John. So it's a musical, but it's a rock show. And we recreate his stuff from, the, from early 1970 all the way to mid 80s. Wow. Now, have you ever met Elton? Yeah, I met him at Disneyland in 1977. <laughs> Just, and that's when he was, he was like the king of rock at that point, you know, because El, El, Elvis had just died. Um, yeah. Or, or was about to die. But anyways, but Elton was at the, he was at the peak of his young career. And he was, he was amazing. And I, I recognized him walking through Disneyland and uh, went up to him and just, you know, actually he passed me by. And so I, I went through the crowd sideways and then ran till I was 50 feet above him and then walked sideways through the crowd until I was directly in front of him again and then walked up to him real casually and just said, hi, uh, uh, may I shake your hand? You know, I always wanted to meet you. I think you're amazing. You inspired me to be a piano player um, and four years ago because Benny the Jets was number one on the charts in 1973 and uh, that's what did it for me. Nice. Yeah. From what I understand, he's like one of the nicest people ever and just so down to earth. Oh, yeah. Well, he was. He was very, um, very nice to me. Um, I mean, I've had his guitar player, his original guitar player, Caleb Quay. Oh, wow. Joined me on stage four times. And Caleb is the guy that actually um, signed Elton to his contract with Dick James Publishing. He, uh, he, mm -hmm. he did all of Elton's audition tapes. And turned them over to Dick James. Dick James told Caleb to sign him. Caleb was A&R at the time. Elton's a year older than Caleb. And Caleb was A&R when he was 17 years old. 
And he, uh, 17 or 18 years old is when he uh, signed Elton to the contract. And so all of those albums, all the way through Captain Fantastic and stuff, you know, were Dick James Publishing and then launched into bigger record labels and stuff like that. And then Elton uh, created Rocket Records and his own label. And it just kept going from there. But, but Caleb, he, um, he also played on like five, six albums of Elton's. Yeah, that I knew. I also, um, one of my neighbors was Paul Buckmeister. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, well, I live in Laurel Canyon, and he was a couple streets over. And I saw him on my neighborhood watch. <laughs> and, you know, we got to talk to each other just through, you know, the internet. Yeah. And um, he just amazed me, and I was wondering if you ever met him. No, I didn't, but he was really good friends with Caleb, and... Caleb just he's just released a documentary called Louder Rock and he talks about the history of being there, you know, with all of them. And Paul Buckmaster was in the um in the documentary talking about how instrumental uh Caleb was. He even actually said, you know, Paul Buckmaster did Ray Williams, um uh, uh and um let's see. Oh, a few others. They all just said if Caleb wouldn't have signed Elton Elton wouldn't be Elton today because he was going to give up. That was his last ditch effort when he came in and Caleb signed him. So, uh, in fact, Caleb was, uh, uh, Elton liked Elton Dean and, um, and, uh, John, um, Baldry. And so he was going to call himself John Elton and Caleb told him, no, 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 flip it around. It's more rock and roll Elton John. So Caleb's even instrumental in the name. And that's all even in the, the comic book that they gave on the insert of Captain Fantastic way back then. That, that whole thing about Caleb shows Caleb illustrated. And he's saying, no, call yourself Elton John. So uh, anyways, but yeah, no, I have not met uh, Paul Buckmaster yet or anything. But well, uh, he's well, it's too late but... now. He passed away. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was like. When I moved back to Laurel Canyon, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm surrounded by all these people I grew up with. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you even had like uh, Charles Manson out there. So, how, you know, how lucky was that? <laughs> well, the fun never stops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, I have. Another... I, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I lived in El Paso um, and I for three years and I flew in once and there was a big sign that said, Welcome to El Paso, home of Laura, I think it was Martinez, Miss America, and the Night Stalker. And I'm like, oh, good. Oh, God. <laughs> well, how funny. Of all yeah. things to put up there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Somebody had a sixth sense of humor. Uh-huh. So I understand I missed you in Temecula a couple of days ago. Yeah, you did. But that's a long drive from where you live. So that's okay. We'll be out your way eventually. And I'll be in Temecula next weekend anyway. Oh, well, I won't be playing then, but, <laughs> but, I, your house. <laughs> but yeah, this COVID thing, man, it sure messed our shows up. This was going to be the first show I was going to be touring year round and uh, we were solidly booked. And uh, my last show at that point was March and uh, which was a Friday, 14, 15. And on the 16th, that's when the, uh, the state of California locked everybody down March 16th, but March 13th was my last show. And the other night on, um, 
I don't know, what's the date backwards now? <laughs> what date it was the 11th of Thursday? Um, yeah. The 11th of uh, what is this month? June. Uh, that was exactly 90 days since my last show. So it was great to get out and play uh, sold out show for the capacity that they were allowed to have because of, you know, COVID restrictions, but everybody there had a ball. It was a great crowd. And, uh, I, I rocked the house for, uh, about 110 minutes solo by myself without the band. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've never seen you play. I've just seen you at NAM. Well, you see, then you've seen me play solo. I have seen you play solo, but at NAM, it's what, like a 20 minute show? Yeah, or I'll play for about 20 minutes and then I'll take a break and I'll talk to people. And then they, because it's all, NAM is all National Association of Music Merchants for those listening. That's what NAM is. And it's, you know, it's where all the music stores and vendors come in to buy equipment to stock their stores with. So you have every music company in the world, you know, guitar picks to toothpicks you know, t-shirts, whatever, you know, that's used mm -hmm. in, in music, lighting, sound, equipment, instruments, everything, guitar strings, everything and anything in music are there selling their newest and latest thing. And so I was uh, endorsed at that time with Grand Illusion Piano Shells. And mm -hmm. uh, so I would play in their booth for them. And uh, so uh, anyways, but that's where we first met. It is. And, you know, because of Nam, I have bowls of guitar picks everywhere. <laughs> That's you know, funny. I don't have my keyboard anymore. I'm going to buy another one. Now, um, I also saw you have a microphone case. Oh, yeah. Anvil um, designed a case for me um, because of COVID. It's mm -hmm. not it's not smart anymore to go into a, a venue and use their microphones. This, you know, the person before you could have had, you know, a sickness of some kind, put their lips on it, their spit on it as they're singing. And then you come up next and you're headlining and you follow them and you, they put that microphone to your mouth. And, uh, you know, a lot of microphones smell pretty bad anyways. So <laughs> it's, it's to the advantage of uh, every uh, musician performing now to go and buy their own microphone. So my show, I've got enough microphone whole band no matter what. And I have bigger road cases for all those microphones. But I never really had a, I had the case that my Sennheiser 441 came in. And it's a, a nine-inch microphone that's rectangular, like a, as if you were holding a harmonica that's nine inches long. And it's, you know, an inch and a half square all the way around. And mm -hmm. so anyway, so I, I called up Joe Calzone, the owner of Anvil, and asked him if he... Uh, would consider taking their briefcase and make it shorter from, you know, uh, if you were holding it from the handle and make a mini microphone case that you can put one microphone in. So uh, artists that are going to go out and gig, most of them only have one microphone. And so instead of throwing in a little zip bag that they give you with phony leather uh, and you throw it in a case, well, they get dinged, you drop them. And most people are, their attitudes, you know, uh, that that don't really understand the value of the microphone. Oh, I can replace the windscreen if it gets dinged, or they don't even, and they just play them with them all dinged up. But if you drop a microphone, you take a chance in hurting the inside guts of it and those modules, those microphone sound module that you're mm -hmm. that that's going to transmit your voice. So uh, it's to everybody's advantage to have a good 
road case. My road, everything in my show is, is in a road case that Anvil has made. And in 10 years on the road, we've not had one incident where something has gotten busted, flying with it or anything. So I asked Joe if he would create one that would hold one microphone, one that would hold two microphones, opposite sides, you know, so they kind of mm -hmm. lay next to each other in a way with foam in between them. And then one, you know, that you could make it even bigger if you needed to put other things, but, or even fill a briefcase for microphones and anything bigger. Of course, they already do all that stuff. But the point right. was so that the individual musician that he owns one microphone 20 years from now, that microphone's going to look the day you put it in because it goes from the case to the stand, does the show off that stand back into the case, and it's going to last 20 years and it's going to look as good and sound as good. So my Sennheiser is a $900 microphone. And so he made me that case and we used it. We did a, a commercial shoot uh, and I was their spokesperson uh, for the mm -hmm. idea anyways and uh, showed it. And then I even did a little promo cl clip with that microphone singing into it in, in, <laughs> in costume with all my road cases from my show back behind me and uh, did it at Anvil Road Cases. So that was fun, and uh, I'm going to do more stuff like that for them in the future. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I have one mic. Um, I do open mics, and I've always brought my own mic because I'm a germaphobe. Yeah, well, that's a good reason now. Exactly. I knew this OCD would pay off someday. So, so, uh, <laughs> so what, um, what, what's, what microphone do you have? I use a Yeti. I also have a Shure that I um, got at NAMM many years ago. But okay. for doing, you know, for doing shows, open mics, a Yeti, and you can hear a mouse fart 10 counties away. <laughs> it's well, overkill. <laughs> well, get, get yourself a new case. I think I will in the next couple of weeks once things start opening up again. And they're not that expensive, believe it or not. They, they're going to have them at a really low price point. So, uh, th but they're Anvil all the way. Solid. And uh, they're bulletproof. That's my slogan to th for them. They're bulletproof. They really are. I like that, especially now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So how can we find you on social media? Kenny Metcalf as mm -hmm. Elton.com. Oh, you've got that. I like it. Kenny Metcalf as Elton.com. Oh, as Elton. As Elton. Kenny Metcalf. M-E-T-C-A-L-F as Elton.com. Love it. And yeah. social media, Facebook, Kenny Metcalf mm -hmm. as Elton. And uh, Twitter at Kenny Metcalf, I think. Mm -hmm. um, same thing, I think, on Instagram. Okay, great. I just love it. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Yeah, I could talk to you forever. I do miss seeing you. I wish you were closer. <laughs> I do, too. It'd be nice to see you. And I'd like to come out and watch you perform. But every time you're playing, I'm on the road. Well, you know, I learned a lot before we go when we were at the last NAM right before the lockdown. Uh, you did um, a seminar on backup singing. Oh, yeah. And I learned so much from that. Yeah, that was and fun. That was a lot of fun. I did book a gig that, of course, got canceled. And it was a non-paying one, but it got me out there. But um, 
you know, I just love that. And was it, or is that your daughter? My grammar sucks. Are those your daughters doing your backup singing? Um, yes. Yeah. And my sister-in-law. So from small to tall, the smallest one is my youngest, Desi. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and then the next one is Charlene. And then mm-hmm. the tallest one is my sister-in-law, Stephanie. And they are my background singers for the show. My daughter, Charlene, also manages and runs the show and owns the business. Wow. Well, it was incredible just listening to them do um, the Rocket Man backup. And I'm like, wow. Just amazing. Yeah, they're good at what they do. Well, it's kind of nice, you know, to, it's when, you, when, when they were babies and I got off the road with Striper, my whole dream was that they'd someday go on the road with me. And they're doing it, you know, and we and we travel all over the world now. I love it. Absolutely love it. I didn't realize you were going around the world. I mean, that'll start again, I think, in the next year. Yes. Uh, that. Me too. I'm looking forward to going back to Europe. Yeah. And back to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hawaii. They're hurting right now. Nobody's yeah. going over there. Yeah. I think the island's on lockdown, isn't it, or something? So they're not letting anybody come in? And that's all everything about their livelihood is tourism. Well, yeah, I have a very good friend who, you know, poor guy stuck on Maui. Bummer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love him forever. But um, when you fly into any island, you have to fly into Honolulu. And it's a 14-day quarantine. Then when you go to another island, it's another 14-day quarantine. Oh, so why bother going? Exactly. I mean, you're stuck in a hotel. Oh, that, yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, their leadership over there. A little bit too uh, careful, I guess. I don't know. Well, you know, they're trying to flatten the curve, and I don't blame them. Well, all they have to do is check and see if you were quarantined here when you came here, when you went there, you know? Yeah, but most people fly in from L.A., and... You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. I, I mean, I was quarantined for 90 days. I mean, and after 14 days, I'm not a carrier anyways. So. I'm an essential worker, so I basically was not quarantined. I've been tested. I've been negative. I'm grateful for that. That's funny. You're negative, but you're the most positive person I know. Oh, why, thank you. <laughs> Well, there's a story behind that that I'm not going to get into, mm-hmm. but um, I'm going to wrap it up. Okay. So, again, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm uh, sorry I talked your ear off. Oh, gosh, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe so someday I, I will... in heaven <laughs> where, when, <laughs> where when forever is forever. <laughs> or we'll do a chapter two. <laughs> okay, that'll be fun. Okay, thanks. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye.